Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Tributes and stories about the actor Sidney Poitier continue since his death on January 6th at the age of 94. Among his many achievements, Poitier was the first black performer to win the Academy Award for Best Actor for Lilies of the Field in 1963. He once said he felt as if I were representing 15, 18 million people with every move I made. Professor and singer Burton teaches in the Department of Film and Media Studies at Emory University. She joins us now via Zoom to discuss some of Sidney Poitier's movies. Welcome back to City Lights. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Let's begin with two films you selected that may not be as familiar as Lilies of the Field, or Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Please first tell us about Paris Blues. Yeah, so Paris Blues is one of my favorite films featuring Sidney Poitier. I love the film because it's Sidney Poitier, it's Diane Carroll, it's Paul Newman, it's Joanna Woodward, and it takes place in Paris. It also features Louis Armstrong with an amazing performance. So I love the film because the cinematography is amazing. It's black and white and it takes place in Paris. So it's visually stunning. But I like it because it really does show Sidney Poitier in a kind of complicated character. He received lots of criticism over the, his career regarding his very uh, stoic <laughs> and respectable representations. And so I think in this movie, he does that, but he also really challenges this whole idea of uh, the types of characters that he plays because the character that he plays in this particular film is definitely self-serving, <laughs> is definitely part of a subculture, I guess you could say, um, because he's a jazz musician in Paris. Um, I know Paris and jazz go hand in hand, but relative to what's happening at that time, in his life and and what uh, the character of Diane Carroll represents, right? Uh, she's someone who is vacationing, but is going back for the struggle. 
Um, it's just a very interesting look at what it means to be Black, globally Black, particularly at a time when, uh, you know, Blacks are fighting for their civil rights here in the United States. So it's very interesting. Yeah. This film was made in 1961. Let's hear a clip from Paris Blues. You said something about buying me some onion soup. It won't run away. No, but I might. You might. Run from here, the garden spot of the Western world, you might run. And not just what you see, but the way the place makes you feel. I'll never forget the first day I walked down Avenue Champs-Élysées. Just like that, I knew I was here to stay. How long have you been away from home? Five years. You've never wanted to go back? No. You stick around Paris for a while and stretch a bit. Sit down for lunch somewhere without getting clubbed for it, and you'll wake up one day, look across the ocean, and you'll say, who needs it? Who needs it? Well, we certainly don't need to sit down for lunch and get club food. Amen. But we do need our roots, don't we? And where our roots are, our home is, wouldn't you say? I would say that you're one of them socially conscious chicks, right? Home to me is home. My family is my family. And whatever problems they've got, I've got them too. Of all the beautiful girls who come to Paris every year, I get a swinger for the cause. Well, I can't fight you on an empty stomach. Besides, we've just met, so I think I'd better take you and buy you that onion soup. I think you'd better. <laughs> he is trying to woo Diane Carroll. There's Notre Dame Cathedral in the background, and... There's this very cool jazz playing as part of the soundtrack underneath their dialogue. And one of the things I love is that she's wise to his wooing her. He calls her one of those socially conscious chicks. <laughs> Would you elaborate on this scene? Sydney Poitier and Diane Carroll, you know, meet and have like amazing chemistry. And they really are focused on, because she's on vacation too, right? Yeah. <laughs> so they're really focused on having a good time. But because their chemistry is so strong and it seems like they should be together. And, you know, prior to this scene, you know, without giving away too much of the movie, Poitier is pretty clear that he does not need to be in a relationship. He needs to focus on his music and focus on doing what he needs to do. And so then he meets this woman and of course that changes everything. But in wooing her, as you say, he learns more about her political side and that, you know, this kind of free spirited, you know, I'm on vacation, just having fun is really her alter ego. <laughs> you know, the real character of, of Connie is played by Diane Carroll is, you know, a, a political activist. Uh, she wants to march. She is for civil rights. She wants to help her people. And so he wants her to stay in Paris. And she's like, no, I have to go back and help my people. And then, you know, she chastises him about running away, you know, from the struggle, running away from the civil rights movement. And so, you know, I think, you know, everybody knows about their long affair, you know, for many years off screen. 
But you see that. Cute. I bet everyone may not. Know. Oh, oh, they don't. Oh, okay. <laughs> so that was like they had a, a long-term relationship. You know, it was nine years, and uh, Diane Carroll was married and, and left her husband to be with Sidney Poitier, who changed his mind and decided to be with his second wife. But at any rate, the movie is magical because it really highlights not only their abilities as actors. Because the the movie, I don't know if you've seen it, but it's very, the narrative is not a very Aristotle's poetic type of narrative. It's not a beginning, middle, end. It just kind of meanders. And you're kind of like, what is this about? But those characters to me, and of course, Newman and, and Woodward, and we know about their history too, right? <laughs> there's <laughs> this, some chemistry going right, on there's there There's some chemistry too. going on. And, but those characters, that scene really crystallizes the whole point of the movie. Right. It's like, when do you, you know, what is life? So these are these questions. Who are you? You know, what is your identity? Um, what is most important to you? Where should you live in this world? Are you a citizen of the world? If so, what does that mean? So all of those questions, kind of those existential questions are brought into play and they have a very real conversation about it that one might think someone would have during that time period. So I just love it. And the jazz soundtrack is amazing. And the performances are amazing. Um, so if you love jazz, if you love Paris, and if you love iconic and legendary Hollywood actors who actually can act <laughs> like Diane Carroll and Sidney Poitier and Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward, then you're going to love this movie. Oh, I thank you for introducing me to it. I absolutely adore it. And superficially speaking, could there be four more gorgeous faces on screen? I mean... <laughs> no, they're stunning. And um, Joanne Woodward, I have to say this too, because I think in a lot of her roles, they have to try really hard to make her look unattractive. <laughs> but in this movie, you see Joanne Woodward, like, I mean, her just intense beauty. She is photographed so beautifully in this movie. And Diane Carroll too, you know, I mean, we've seen her too. And you know, they are just photographed so beautifully. They're dressed impeccably. They just radiate and exude uh, sexiness. They are alluring and they're smart and they are sure of themselves and they know who they are and they know what they want and they're going for theirs, you know? And so I love that about the movie as well, where you kind of meet them and they have that stereotypical, oh, these two American girls going to Paris, they on vacation. But then the more you get to know the characters, the more you see who they really are. And they are women who are in complete possession of themselves and know what they want and ask for it. And how atypical was this film for 1961 on a number of levels? Well, for Hollywood, it was very atypical. You know, Hollywood is very good at appropriating movements, you know, other film movements. So if you look at independent film or French films or what have you, this is already happening. But when you're looking at Hollywood films, and you see some of it, I would argue, probably in the film noir genre uh, in terms of women being in possession of themselves, but also being demonized and typically killed <laughs> at the end of the movie, right? But in um, this particular film, you know, these women are in possession of themselves and they're not demonized and they're not, you know, judged necessarily. They just are who they are and they want what they want. And so I think it's a precursor to of course, the, the Equal Rights Amendment and the women's rights movement, that version of the women's rights movement, because there have been several that takes place during that time period. It, it really speaks to women really defining who they are 
you know, challenging and questioning institutions. I'm trying not to give away too much of the movie. <laughs> challenging and questioning institutions and really making it plain, you know, about what they want. So it is exceptional for Hollywood films, even though they move pretty quickly into what we call the golden age of cinema, which heavily reflects these types of interrogations of these types of issues, but wasn't really what was happening at the time. How successful was this at the box office? I'm wondering because was it still revolutionary to see romantic love between two Black people on screen? Yeah, I mean, you had, this is pre the black exploitation era of cinema where you saw a lot of black folks and um, Claudine, which also starred Diane Carroll, which has an amazing uh, loving relationship between her and James Earl Jones in that particular film. But yeah, this is Sidney Poitier, you know, cause people talk about Sidney Poitier, like, Oh, he's the first black man to kiss a white woman on, uh, in a film. Well, kissed her on the cheek, <laughs> <laughs> but like to show black people in love or having any type of affection on screen in Hollywood, was not happening. So he's also groundbreaking in that way, right? He is, you know, in a movie with Diane Carroll. He's in a movie and with black women too, right? You know, they always talk about him with with white women, but he's in these movies with black women. Abby Lincoln, jazz legend, actress. She does an amazing work and for the love of Ivy. And then um, she is an actress who, she's a performer who also takes on these kinds of roles that interrogate these issues. And she doesn't have the notoriety of Sidney Poitier as an actor, but she's making these types of films too. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes, and my guest is Professor Nsenga Burton from the Department of Film and Media Studies at Emory University. We've been speaking about the life and legacy of actor Sidney Poitier. For Love of Ivy is another one of your favorites, and Abby Lincoln is sensational, as well as Sidney Poitier, of course. Once again, his character seems unlikely to be smitten by a woman, and the clip is a seduction scene, though he, this being the early 1960s, has a sudden urge to control his, shall we say, urges at the <laughs> moment. Ah, you're a reformer. I knew it. A holy roller reformer. I'm not. I'm not anything. That's the trouble. Wrong, lady. You're something. Well, you don't want me, so I can't be very much. Suppose I did want you. I wouldn't mind. You just throw yourself at anybody. Well, you're not just anybody. That's right. Look, I'll call Eddie, and uh, he can ride you around a while before he takes you home. Preserve your reputation as a swinger. Why wouldn't you mind? Because I like you. Now, that goes to show you how wrong you are. You don't see that fish? That piranha strikes at anything in its way. That's me. And with little chicks like you, I murder, girl. 
I mean, there are bodies strewn all over the city. I'll bet there are. Yeah, you better believe there are. Would, would you talk about this scene? <laughs> yeah, so For Love of Ivy is one of my favorite films because it's about, it's about so many things, right? But it's it's really about these two people who are very goal, you know, have goals that are oppositional to each other, you would think, but they have a shared um, desire for love and partnership. And that really overrules the rest of it. But in this particular scene, you know, he's trying to be a gentleman, uh, but not quite sure he wants to be a gentleman, not quite sure how this is going to play out. But I think this is at a time when movies were made and when the idea of you having sex with someone meant that there was going to be more afterwards, right? So you were going to be together or you were going to be married, <laughs> even though this film takes place in 1968. And this is definitely during the, the raging 60s and uh, free love and all of that. He's still being, he and I would argue Abby Lincoln are still constrained because of the representation, the historic representation of Black men and women in relationships on film, particularly in Hollywood. And so I think they have to be careful about how they showed them being in love with each other, making love with each other. But I do like that they, we get to see the courtship. We get to see, you know, Black people being, you know, doing what regular folks do, <laughs> right? Everybody courted back then. They were courting, right? We get to see, you know, Bo Bridges as a very young person playing this kind of flower kid who's not really a flower kid. He really is like, oh my God, our, you know, caretaker, our maid wants to improve her life. We've got to stop this. <laughs> and doesn't even understand until the end of the movie how he really pushed, pushed her out the door. But she was already leaving because she already had her own mind, her own identity. And so I love this film because it, it makes me think of imitation of life. And when we find out that this Black woman has been in servitude to this white woman, and she has this whole other life that this white woman does not know about. They're friends, they raise their kids together, all of that. But she has this whole other life. And so you see that also, that theme come back in for Love of Ivy. And so in a very kind of flippant way, he he is really trying to strategize as the Bo Bridges character on how to keep her there, to keep her in her place. And essentially by partnering with this Black man who does seem to be opposite of her and where she's trying to go, they find that common bond and, you know, find love and love helps them to get, helps both of them get to where they need to be. And that's universal. Moving toward one of the better known films, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner was also made in 1968, same year as For Love of Ivy. Very different in tone and so much has been said about it, and aspects of it feel downright ridiculous now. Mm -hmm. Can you put it in its context for the time and also comment on the place it has now? Yeah, I mean, guess who's coming to dinner? It seems ridiculous because we're being revisionist. <laughs> Right. But if you think about, I mean, think about 1968, right? You know, Dr. King is assassinated. Lots of things are happening in 1968, right? And so it is really, uh, you know, people are so committed to not having multiracial, interracial Black people come together with white people and friendship and neighborhoods. 
to such an extent that we are assassinating our nonviolent leaders. So in the context of this and all the other assassinations, right, and all the protests, and this is post civil rights, right? So we have Brown versus Board of Education, that's 1954. Then you have the Civil Rights Act in 1964. You got the Voting Rights Act in 1965. You have Equal Rights Amendment. You have all of these things happening leading up to this particular movie. So the movie is groundbreaking at the time because we hadn't seen this in films outside of independent films. Um, and the way that it was represented even outside of Hollywood films was problematic. But you hadn't seen a black man and a white woman be in love and pronounce that love, announce that love to their families and uh, be very uh, specific about what it is they want and not caring about what other people think. Mom, this is John. Dr. Prentice, I'm so pleased to meet you. I'm pleased to meet you, Mrs. Drayton. I take it Joanna's already busted out with the big news. Well, she has um, t told me a good deal, and all very quickly, too. Well, she's only known me for 10 days, so she can't tell you when I'm blushing. <laughs> that could be another problem for us. <laughs> <clears throat> Mrs. Drayton, I'm medically qualified, so I hope you wouldn't think it presumptuous if I say you ought to sit down before you fall down, I mean. He thinks you're going to faint because he's a Negro. Well, I don't think I'm going to faint. <clears throat> But I'll sit down anyway. They definitely had some thoughts about it. You know, they were clear that it was going to be complicated or what have you, but they were committed to the idea of being together. This is also Sidney Poitier, who is married at the time to a white woman in real life, which is a big deal, right? You, you may recall that Sammy Davis Jr. was uninvited to the White House by John F. Kennedy when he married a white woman. So this is a big deal. It's not a big deal to us now, but it's a big deal then. So the movie is important because it represents one of the first times you see in Hollywood a romantic relationship between a Black person and a white person. You see them coming from uh, well-to-do backgrounds, right? So it's a class element. You see the hesitation and the challenges that both families have. You still have, you know, again, another all-star cast. So it's a big movie. So, you know, somebody like a Catherine Hepburn lending herself to this type of movie, right, you know, is important. Spencer Tracy lending himself to this type of movie at this particular time is important. And so that's why we have to think about this movie in a very different way. I mean, you know, you have Isabel Sanford in this movie. Virginia Christine is in this movie. Derville Martin is in this movie. I mean, you know, there's some heavy hitters. So to make this movie was not a safe thing to do, but they did it because it needed to be done. And, you know, even uh, Catherine Harden, who played Joey Drayton, you know, that might have been a career killer for her. Really? Yeah, yeah, that might have been a career killer for her. B. Richards, who does, has done amazing work, but at this particular time doing this film, right? So they were all taking a chance by doing this film. And I think, you know, Sidney Poitier, if you watch his interviews, you know, he talks candidly about that. Right, you know, about how the timing, like his emergence and his rise in terms of fame 
and his ability to do these films or these types of films, you know, because he, he did this, he did, you know, to serve with love. Uh, he did in the heat of the night. Um, he won for Lilies of the Field in 1964, right? But it's the timing that is happening as well that allows him and these other actors to take this chance and to make this type of film. Well, it's important for us to hear you say that because looking at the film now, part of what's eyeball rolling for me, mm -hmm, <laughs> mm -hmm. his character had to be a doctor, mm -hmm. an accomplished mm -hmm. doctor. And he had to be a widower mm -hmm. whose wife and little boy mm -hmm. were killed. So, you know, he's this superhero of the human, which somehow is supposed to make him acceptable. Yeah, but that's not unusual <laughs> then or not in terms of when people marry and when people are allowed to intermarry, right? And I think part of that also is that they had to make him, you know, sympathetic because people rarely see Black people in general and Black men specifically as sympathetic characters. So they had to paint him in the best brush that they could. So it's, it's highly problematic. It's disturbing, but it was necessary because if anybody was going to watch that film, if, if you wanted mainstream American audiences to watch this film, it had to be that. Professor Nsinga Burton from the Department of Film and Media Studies at Emory University. We'll return with more of our conversation about the life and legacy of Sidney Poitier in just a moment. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Great to have you along. Let's return to my conversation with Professor Nsinga Burton from the Department of Film and Media Studies at Emory University. We've been discussing the life and legacy of Sidney Poitier. So let's talk about what followed. Guess who's coming to dinner? We have a very powerful moment in this clip from In the Heat of the Night. Your attitudes, Mr. Endicott, your points of view are a matter of record. Some people, well, let us say the people who work for Mr. Colbert might reasonably regard you as the person least likely to mourn his passing. We were just trying to clarify some of the evidence. 
Was Mr. Colbert ever in this greenhouse, say, last night about midnight? Good, Lesby. Yeah. You saw it. Well, I saw it. Well, what are you going to do about it? I don't know. I'll remember that. There was a time when I could have had you shot. Yes, he slaps my all-time favorite actor, Rod Steiger. (laughs) (laughs) People are surprised by that, but I love Rod Steiger. Well, he was was pretty intense as actors go. He is. I mean, he's he's amazing. He's amazing. Yeah, I'm hoping most people have seen it, but if you have not seen In the Heat of the Night, you must. Because it's about a, a you know so-called uppity <laughs> police officer from Philadelphia who comes down to the South Mississippi to investigate a case and is falsely accused, and then after he is exonerated, stays to continue investigating the case. Um, and Rod Steiger brilliantly plays a racist police chief uh, who's in charge of the investigation allegedly. <laughs> so without giving more away, this movie or this film is revolutionary because Sidney Poitier is really going toe-to-toe with him in terms of intellect, in terms of passion, in terms of anger. And in this particular scene, he slaps him, which is something you never see in a movie, right? And this is powerful because in real life at this particular time, this is, you know, this is leading up to Black folks having um, civil rights, right? So in real life, if you were a Black person and you, you know, you slapped a white person in the South, that was punishable by death and not in any court of law, not in any court of law, right? So this is 1967. You have the Civil Rights Act of 1964 has just passed. It takes forever to get it enacted right? It takes 10 years in the South plus most states, Southern states, for them to actually start following through and following the law. So when he does this, it is an act of defiance. It is this character saying, you know, I am equal to you. I have rights too. You're not going to treat me any kind of way. You're not going to talk to me any kind of way. And we are equal. And that was powerful um, when you think about the representation of that happening, especially as it relates to the Jim Crow South where, as you know, there were, you know, segregated theaters. Um, Some films could not even come to the South if they had interracial content in it. Films were heavily edited. You know, some of them were even destroyed because they took out so much, um, the censors took out so much of the films when they were playing in the South. So it's like bigger than this particular film, but the film is so huge because it's a very well done film. That's number one. The acting is fantastic. The director, Norman Jewison. I mean, he doesn't make bad films. <laughs> <laughs> and then you have this particular scene, which is groundbreaking. So Sidney Poitier's career is groundbreaking in this way in so many, in so many different types of films. And this one is where he stands up to the police, right? When we think about social justice issues, when we think about representations of the police, representations of criminality, Black criminality, when you think about representations of masculinity, and when we think about racial uh, relations uh, on screen. So it's a powerful scene uh, because you had never seen that before 
on screen. And if that had happened in real life, we know what the consequences might have been. Uh, yeah. And Senga, I saw an interview in which he revealed that that slap on the part of his character was not in the script. It was not. And he asked that it be added and written into his contract, that it would be included. Would you talk about how extraordinary that was? Yeah, I mean, so first of all, let me just, Sidney Poitier, the way he came to acting was so hard for him, right? You know, he's um, born in Miami. He's Bahamian. His parents are tomato farmers. They come to the U.S. They sold their tomatoes in Miami. And um, he was born on one of their trips. Then he has to drop out in the third grade to help his parents farm. Then there's a ban. The U.S. puts a ban on tomatoes coming out of the Bahamas. So they become destitute, even more so. Then he has to come to the U.S. with a third grade education, lives with his brother, decides he wants to be an actor. He's a dishwasher. And auditions, and they're like, your accent's too thick, your accent's too thick, your accent's too thick. And this is even at the Negro Actors Ensemble. So I say all of that to say, Sidney Poitier, and he says this in his interviews, had to really delve into the craft of acting. He had to teach himself. He says he had to teach himself how to read better. He had to teach himself how to pronounce words well. So this is someone who, you know, when people say, oh, you need to study the craft of acting. This is someone who really studied the craft of acting and understands character development and becoming your character. And if you read this um, screenplay, and if you watch the movie, and you think about the fact that had Sidney Poitier not smacked him back based on how his character was written, it didn't, it would not have made sense. And so the fact that he was able to get that put in to the script, he was able to slap Rod Steiger, a superstar, <laughs> <laughs> a superstar, and to have it in his contract that they were going to keep it in, and that Rod Steiger said yes, Norman Jewison said yes, the studio said yes. That shows you the caliber of actor he was. That shows you how much he was respected in the industry, and that shows you, you know, contrary to popular belief, that he was willing to make some choices that might have had dire consequences for him. He might not have made a movie after that. They might have recast him. A lot of things could have happened. Yeah, he said that. He thought that if his character did not slap back, that he was taking a slap for all Black people. It's true. And that is what we call the burden of representation in media studies, cinema studies in particular, right? It's when you are part of a disenfranchised group that has to deal with structural racism and other types of isms. And then when you get your shot, and you're on the screen, right? Because Sidney Poitier is one of the biggest stars of this time period. We're talking about in box office, awards, um, the number of films he made, all right? So he's like a huge star. But when you get that shot, you represent all of those other people who have never made it, haven't been cast, weren't able to do it. And so that's what he's talking about. Like he could not, for Black people, allow that, especially, let's talk, you know, the time period we're talking about. We're talking about 1960s, 1967, 1968. This is the Black Power Movement, right? This is SNCC deciding to, to move away from nonviolence. Dr. King is, is assassinated. 
you got the SCLC. So you've got all of these kind of forces working in society, trying to make it better for Black people, even if their philosophies differ on the best way to do that. So why did he get flack from other Black people later in the 1960s about playing these roles? I mean, granted, he his characters were often role models, but he was not shy. Sidney Poitier represented, for lots of people, uh, for many people, and African-Americans are not monolithic, but for many African-Americans at the time, Sidney Poitier represented kind of what you talked about with the, the movie Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, right? This respectable, stoic character who's always turning the other cheek, so to speak. And, you know, the challenge for, for Poitier or what made him a complicated figure at that time was while he's playing these characters in society, African-Americans, many African-Americans are embracing Black power, Black is beautiful, these kinds of ideologies that are um, in opposition to this idea that you got to look just like white people, dress like white people, behave like white people in order to make it. And then they will accept you. Well, we learned that that is not the case. And we also learned that they don't respect you. They won't necessarily respect you. Even when you do all of those things, you're well-educated, you're handsome, you know, uh, you work on behalf of your community, you are nonviolent, you ask people to be nonviolent, and then they assassinate you, like Dr. King, right? Or a, a number of, of folks um, at the time period. And so, unfortunately for Sidney Poitier, that's the point where he came, where he, he was at his most um, visible. And so he is bearing that burden of representation of being the only Black person who's working at that level in Hollywood. He's the only Black person working at that level in Hollywood, outside of Belafonte, who is now moving into some other directions. So he is the person. He is that guy. And so he's carrying all of that. Um, and so that's what he's talking about when he says that, you know, he could not be slapped by that police officer and then really go home to his community. You know, and in addition to that, in real life, that probably would not have happened with that type of character as the character had been written and directed. It would not have fit. So there are lots of different things happening at the same time. But, you know, the real part of it is, you know, he has to bear that burden of representation. And so while many people were like, finally, a respectable Black person <laughs> on screen, Ooh, finally, a Black lead actor, Ooh, finally, a Black Academy Award winner who finally, you know, he still is functioning within a time period where people are like, we've been doing all of that in real life for 200 years. <laughs> and where has that gotten us? Now we have to try something different. So we need our art to reflect where society is. And so he just kind of got pulled into that political space where I think America learned that Black people are not monolithic. We have different ideas about of success. We have different ideas about how to go about getting our rights, who should be representing us, what it should look like, the role that art should play in society and in freedom or helping to gain freedom. So he was in the midst of that. And so that's why he got slack, not for that particular role, but for the combination of the types of roles that he was playing, because they did not push against um, these dominant ideas of America and what America represented enough for some people who were looking for a more radical 
approach to freedom. Dr. Nsenga Burton from the Department of Film and Media Studies at Emory University. We discussed the life and legacy of Sidney Poitier, who passed away on January 6th at the age of 94. Coming up, we'll listen back to our interview with one of the countless actors for whom Poitier paved the way, Atlanta native Jordan Christie. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. The darkly comedic drama, Why Women Kill, slayed audiences this past summer, if you will, as it wrapped up its second season. City Lights engineer and contributor Shelley Canavy follows the anthology series. And back in June, she caught up with Atlanta native Jordan Christie, the actor who portrays Detective Vern Loomis. Season two of Why Women Kill is set in 1949 and follows several storylines down dark, twisty paths that eventually intertwine. In the Paramount Plus TV show, we meet private detective Vern Loomis and watch as he's hired by a married woman to investigate not her husband, but her lover. Atlanta native Jordane Christie plays Detective Vern Loomis, and he joins me now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Mm, Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, so the title Why Women Kill makes me think about true crime shows like Dateline, Secrets Uncovered, or Snapped, which is one of my favorites. It profiles women who kill their husbands or lovers. But this is not true crime. Do you have any thoughts about why we're interested in this kind of story anyway? Well, it's a fun take on the matter. But it's also period. So the story takes place in 1949. So it's really a journey of an experience, truly. Mark Cherry, who created Desperate Housewives, created this show. So it has kind of that same tone. It's a fun, slightly soapy um, drama, uh, dramedy, really. Uh, So it has both notes of comedy and drama in, in it. And it's just some just really rich characters that are fun and relatable a little over the top sometimes but it's it's escapism it's it's entertainment and it's a it's a good watch for sure yeah people love to hear this kind of story like watching someone get to a point that most of us can't imagine that we're ever going to get to and we even get to see one of the main characters a waitress named d serving your character Vern, in a diner and she mentions a magazine that she's reading called masters of crime you know that paper you're pretending to read is two days old so it is. Well, you got something newer. Just finish this. Give it a try. Masters of Crime. Huh. You read this stuff. Oh, I love a good murder. Bloodier the better. See, violence doesn't bother me. Is that so? Yeah. Keep that in mind when you tip me. It's also, uh, in ways, a love letter to a lot of um, classic films from that golden 
era of Hollywood in the 40s. Um, a lot of her characters are inspired by tropes and by characters previously made during some of those times. Humphrey Bogart and The Big Sleep. And, and there's a lot of also allusions to the classic film Sunset Boulevard. And it's, it's really well thought out and it's, it is good storytelling. Yeah, a little soapy, but played very well um, <laughs> by some very strong actors and actresses both from the lead and supporting cast. We have a lot of um, Broadway vets on, on our cast as well. So it's it's cool. It's a great ensemble piece. Yes, it definitely is. The music in the show gives it, gives it kind of a film noir feel. Were you thinking of that kind of thing? And what else do you think you used to get into that 1949 mindset? Yeah, uh, we, uh, you said it. Certainly the music of the time. I listened to, uh, became an even deeper lover of Coltrane, which Coltrane was actually, began around that time in a few years. Uh, it was prominent uh, more in like later 50s. But I really um, enjoyed um, using that music uh, as well as some other to, to kind of get into the time frame. But also watching a lot of classic films. I mean, the, it was a fun film study for me, for sure, and to, and to see what I can pull pull from and, um, and inform this character. Yeah. The show is full of plot twists and turns. I literally gasped during episode two. So do you, as an actor, have any idea of where the story is going, or are you just on this ride with us? During the, the production of it, I was pretty much on the, the ride the way you guys are now because we got like the next script while we were shooting the previous script. But I had no idea really what the fate of our characters would be, where we were going by the end of the episode. I did hear that some actors who primed the producers and, and got a little bit of info out of them, but they, they would prefer you not to. And I was kind of just like, all right, well, let me just go with the ride and see how this plays out. And I had fun with that. Yeah, it's very fun. And the show is called Why Women Kill, but so far, and I've only seen the first three episodes, but no women have done any killing. Almost, but not quite. So is there is there something to that? Do I just need to wait and see? I'm very impatient. Yo, yeah, hang in there. <laughs> hang in there. Definitely gets messy. Ooh. I mean, in the second episode, we did see Miss Yost uh, die. That was kind of an accidental killing. That is where I gasped. I was, I was floored. Yes. I had no idea. She kind of laid her own bed in a way, though, right? She was asking yes. for it, but... And for the unfamiliar, Mrs. Yost is the nosy neighbor. <laughs> Alma kind of did assist that death unknowingly. Well, that is true, unknowingly. That is true. I didn't think of that. <laughs> but, uh, but we see there's some history there with her husband as well. You know, a dark history there before. I'm not sure if you caught that. You mean the killing part, right? His dark history? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I no, mean, that's I did, all anybody yeah. cares about, right? Is the killing. Well, right? the killing is the thing we care about. We don't want to give away all the spoilers. But yeah, Alma, who is the housewife, uh, discovers that her husband has been doing some killing. <laughs> um, your character is particularly sweet to Dee, the waitress who also happens to be Alma's daughter. What are you doing? You okay? Funny enough... Yeah. I've put up with so much. My whole life. Other girls got toast. I got crumbs. I wanted more, but mom made me think that girls who aren't pretty should be thankful for whatever we can get. And I believed her. Then tonight, I finally said no. 
I deserve more. Do you think it's important to portray that kind of kindness to women who feel a certain way about themselves? I mean, is this was this the writer making some kind of a point? Hmm. That's a good question. I mean, I think the the beginning of what's going on between D and I is um, is he sees her spirit. They are attracted to each other in ways that are, uh, I guess, beyond the obvious. So, yeah, I mean, I think you you're beginning to see something that is uh, rich and just kind of from a place of, of purity. I mean, Vern sees a lot of nasty stuff in his, in his line of work, a lot of lying and a lot of cheating and, and just people doing the worst that they can do. Right. And yeah, he's kind of just, I think, attracted to her purity and her honesty. She seems just very honest She's and, and with a great sense of humor too. Yeah, and a little a little bit of a tough cookie, too. Yes. Yes, <laughs> yeah. yes, yes. So I want to shift to some of your other work. Uh, during the pandemic, you also filmed a short movie called We Can't Breathe. Can you tell me about that film? Yeah, We Can't Breathe was a short film that I collaborated with with a young director named Clarence Williams. He reached out to me. It was a, a passion piece that he wrote that was also just um, a great time to express what a lot of us were feeling shortly after the uh, George Floyd killing and protest. It was one that we made in quarantine, which was me and and a young lady, where it was based upon a couple, a young couple, arguing essentially kind of different points. She was biracial and her father was a, a white police officer and kind of bumping heads and fighting their, their points, really. It was a good time to express all of ourselves in the ways we, we needed to. Our Why Women Care we shot entirely during the pandemic as well. Yeah, we started production in October and we finished in April. Yeah, it presents its challenges, that's for sure. But all in all, I mean, it was I was so grateful to have a job, to have work during the pandemic. But yeah, it definitely presented its obstacles for sure. And Jordan, you're from Atlanta, right? Yeah, I mean, I grew up in Sandy Springs, Fulton County. I went to Riverwood International Charter School, went up to New York for college. But yeah, Atlanta, Atlanta is, is, is a huge part of my story, and I, I love Atlanta. This is meaningful to me, for sure. And it must have been interesting when you were cast in Donald Glover's show on FX called Atlanta, in Atlanta, being from Atlanta. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I did an episode on the second season, and uh, I, w- I was super excited to work on that show. I'm a big fan of that show. And yes, titled Atlanta. Just just the, the creativity involved with that show. It was, it was definitely a dream, and it was a super fun, super fun episode. We also shot The, the Haunting of Hill House um, in Atlanta, too. A lot of my favorite jobs happened in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. So I want to talk about your parents really quickly. They're Jamaican, correct? Yes. What do they feel about this? Is this, it's not exactly the road they saw for you, right? <laughs> it was not. It definitely, it definitely wasn't. I had a lot of pressure to go into medicine. My parents are actually both in medicine. They're Jamaican immigrants. Both of them moved here when they were like late teens. And so, you know, just different priorities. Also, generationally, it just seems uh, a bohemian and crazy to, to pursue a, any career in the arts. Early on, it was a lot of resistance. But, um, but you know, they've, they've come around. Um, but to be honest, I think that resistance kind of made me a little bit more focused and driven to like, well, well I'm going to make this work, you know? <laughs> so, so they're very loving and they're supportive now for sure. You know, they're very proud of me. But, you know, I know it's based in, it's, that was really based in a fear and a fear of the unknown. What's coming up next for you? Well, there are a lot of things that my team were looking over and were in the mix for, but nothing officially yet. 
a great dream as I heard that they're looking for a, for a black Superman. And I'm like, oh, can we uh, can we see about that? Ooh, <laughs> yeah, definitely. But, yeah. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot of things that we're being seen for. And it, it's, it's exciting. And I'm, I'm just I'm really excited right now for for the world to see this show as well. I mean, it's it's uh, I've worked on quite a few productions in Atlanta as well. But this is my first full season um, arc, you know, as a regular character. So I'm really ex- excited for the exposure that it's bringing. Atlanta native actor Jordane Christie from the TV series Why Women Kill. Christie was speaking with City Lights engineer and contributor Shelley Canavy. The entire series is available for streaming on Paramount Plus TV. You've been listening to City Lights our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll hear about an upcoming performance by the Atlanta Master Chorale with director Eric Nelson and mezzo-soprano Jamie Barton as guest soloist. Plus, the new exhibit... Storyland, on view now at the Children's Museum of Atlanta. City Lights senior producer is Kim Drogues. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. Share your feedback with us on Facebook at WABE City Lights or check out our pictures and videos on Instagram where we are at City Lights underscore Lois Writes Us. And of course, I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.